Welcome to the Mid the Pines podcast, a place where Grove City College alumni and faculty give voice to their unique stories, contributions, and accomplishments. Our community is blessed with many individuals who are often recognized for their proficiency, purpose, and principles, all celebrated hallmarks of the distinctive Grove City College education. Learn more about their God-given callings and the work they are undertaking for the common good. These are their personal and professional stories. Hello, this is Amy Evans from Grove City College, and I'm joined today by alumna Karen Hawkins-Reed, class of 1992. Karen is an Emmy award-winning journalist and CEO of Speaker Dynamics, a corporate communications training firm featured in Forbes. While speaking through a webcam might be relatively new to much of the world, Karen has been teaching business professionals how to be effective on-camera communicators for nearly a decade. A three-time award-winning author, she has been quoted as a thought leader by various prestigious publications, including Incorporated Magazine, Fast Company, and Business Insider. And she was also named an author who inspires us by McKinsey & Company. Karen and her team have been the chosen training partner for some of the world's most recognized companies, from Nike to Lenovo, and most respected academic institutions in the world from Duke University to the Graduate School of Business at Stanford. So Karen, we have a lot to talk about today. Just wanna to welcome you to Mid the Pines podcast. Amy, thank you so much for having me. This is a wonderful opportunity. Well, there's a lot to dive into, so I'm going to jump right in because reading your story online was definitely something that relates to what we're doing currently in our work environment at Grove City, but for many other alumni and friends. I was not surprised to see that you are a communication major at Grove City College, so if you could kick us off, share a little bit about your career after Grove City and how you arrived to where you are today. Absolutely. So I will say I came into Grove City as an accounting major, which was such a ridiculous mismatch <laughs> of skill sets. And I had an 8 a.m. accounting class on a Saturday that oh, just dear. was the nail in the coffin for that possibility. So, so I, I did. I switched to communications wisely enough. So actually, my career started when I was still at, at Grove City because I was working as the lifestyles and religion editor for Allied News, which uh, was a biweekly newspaper in Grove City. I'm not sure if it's still around, but uh, yeah. so I was doing that work. And as part of that, I had done a feature story on the wife of a local anchorman uh, who was at the CBS affiliate in Youngstown. And she said, oh, you should talk to my husband about you know, broadcast journalism as opposed to print. And I said, okay, that sounds good. I talked to him. He got me in touch with the news director for WKBN who hired me my senior year of college to be the weekend reporter, weekend weather person. And I say weather person because truly, I don't know much about weather. I didn't know then. I still don't know, but somehow they thought it was okay. <laughs> it would not have uh, been something that would be a possibility today because people need a meteorology degree. But I was a weather presenter. So I would be in school you know, Monday through Friday. And then on the weekends, I would be driving to Youngstown and, and doing my thing. Uh, so that's how my career began. Then what happened was I went full-time when I graduated. 
worked there for a number of years. And then I got a call from NBC to come and work for their owned and operated station in Providence, Rhode Island. And so I moved up there and worked there for, you know, well over a decade and, you know, interviewed luminaries like Muhammad Ali and, you know, had a great experience. Um, but then needed to make a change of pace. I had two kids a year apart, very honestly, and that is not a family-friendly business. So <laughs> I was looking for some better balance. And uh, so what we decided to do, my husband and I, is we uh, moved to North Carolina, uh, where I'm currently residing. And I started doing a lot of on-camera spokesperson work. So I would be the professional on-camera spokesperson, but they would bring people in from the corner office and the corner cubicle to appear on camera alongside of me and expect them to perform at the same level of skill. That often did not go so well. So I thought, you know, there's a business opportunity here, teaching business professionals how to be better on-camera communicators. So that's how my business began, Speaker Dynamics, uh, to, you know, kind of meet this skill gap. So that was 2012. Uh, so I trained mostly the executive leadership teams of various companies across all industries and verticals, wrote a book on camera coach in 2017, which did very well focused on that very niche uh, part of video communication. Then COVID hits. And suddenly I go from training the executive leadership team to training the entire enterprise. So I had to learn how to quickly scale speaker dynamics um, and be able to kind of meet the onslaught of need. Uh, in the middle of that, I ended up writing two books with an amazing co-author, um, Suddenly Virtual. Uh, which came out last year, and then suddenly hybrid, uh, which came out this year, uh, addressing just the meeting disruptions that happened. You know, we went from meeting face to face to meeting completely virtual to now meeting in this hybrid way where some people might be in the room together, some people might be dialing in on the phone, some people might be appearing on the video screen, and how do you manage that? But my co-author is the director of the Center for Meeting Effectiveness at the University of uh, Utah. And so we basically bring together our two areas of expertise. He is the meeting scientist, I'm the video communication expert, and they somehow collide as a result of this new way of gathering as a result of the pandemic. Wow, that's a lot. And I'm so excited for the conversation because of the suddenly hybrid as well as like virtual meetings. Definitely things that I want to learn about today. I am really curious though, in your biography, you have an Emmy Award, which I, I understand, yes, is it's considered one of the most prestigious awards a television professional could receive. Yeah. So I'm curious if you could just share a little bit about when you received this award, what was that like? Why did you receive it? Just a little bit of that. Yeah. yeah, happy to talk about it. So I received it for a documentary I did on uh, special needs adoption, which is uh, on children who are in foster care, who are adopted into forever homes. And it was really uh, just one of the most um, gratifying things to work on because I got to see uh, these families being formed in, you know, perhaps not the traditional way, but in a way that was uh, truly everlasting and just a beautiful thing to be, you know, on that side of the camera watching it all kind of unfold. So I love doing documentary work. Uh, and, and that was one of the reasons why you know TV work became less uh, appealing to me too because as the 24-hour news cycle uh, you know created mm -hmm. this need to constantly kind of be need to be filled 
there was less time to do documentary work. And, and that was really where my heart was. So, you know, the, the industry changed, my, uh, you know, personal situation changed, my, my um, you know, desires on how I wanted my work-life balance to, to fit changed. And so, you know, I, I've been very fortunate that I've been able to make these, these career changes, uh, but still mm -hmm. have a lot of opportunity to do gratifying work along the way. And your change is really appealing. You are the CEO of the Speaker Dynamics, and it sounds like from what you just said that it led you into that based on family needs and the flexibility. Um, did you always envision yourself in a leadership role? What inspired you to start your own company versus try to find somewhere else to work? Well, I think for Speaker Dynamics, it was it was identifying that there are all these brilliant people who are, I was surrounded by who were somehow feeling less than because mm -hmm. they couldn't speak through a camera. And I thought, gosh, that's really a terrible thing. Like yeah. being able to speak on camera, that's that's a secondary skill set related to the brilliance that you have in your head. So if I can help you to gain confidence and competence in getting all of that uh, brilliance out of your head and into the world by way of a video, uh, that's an amazing opportunity. And I felt like I was in this kind of unique position because I had worked so long on camera, but I'd also worked for a long time in, in, in the corporate world as well because I was, you know, as an on-camera spokesperson. So I kind of knew what sort of messages needed be, to be delivered. Um, and so I think it was just me realizing, okay, I'm in kind of an unusual position here. I think that there is a business here. Uh, and I think that I should follow through with my hunch. And I'm so glad I did. <laughs> yeah, I am too, because it's definitely in demand, um, which is where I want to draw some of the attention to our conversation with the virtual meetings. So this idea you had before the global pandemic, I understood from previous conversation. Yeah. Um, and then it happened where it was at first a five-year plan, I believe we talked about at one point, but then turned around in three weeks. Yeah. Um, <laughs> when did you actually start writing about the practice of virtual meetings? And then what did you do to release it during a time of high demand? So here's how this all went down. It's kind of crazy when we, we think about it. So uh, my co-author, Joe Allen, and I were working as subject matter experts for a mutual client, and we were asked to do a webinar on the future of meetings. And that was the first week of March 2020. And we said, oh, yeah, in five, 10 years, uh, video will be at the core of these meetings that we have on these virtual communication platforms, and they will just gain in popularity and necessity. So beginning in March 2020 is when that happened. What, you know, two, three weeks later, everything we said would happen in five to 10 years happened like practically overnight. And so we thought, okay, well, that was you know, expedited. Uh, we both went off our, in our own separate directions. He was being asked to, you know, please help me figure out how to do these meetings and was gathering a ton of data uh, because he is a researcher at heart and he wanted to find out what was going on with meetings in, in the moment. I was drinking from the fire hose with clients who were saying, okay, I know that you normally train like, you know, 10 people per workshop. Can you train 800? And I think that's a lot of workshops. <laughs> so, so I had to figure out how to scale up my team. We ended up going a digital route. Um, I have Speaker Dynamics University, which is an online training platform for virtual meeting effectiveness, which we're really proud of and has had a lot of uh, traction. Uh, but we came back together a couple of months later and just said, hey, what's going on in your world? Oh, the same thing's going on in my world. You know, maybe we can figure out a way to get 
these best practices out uh, on a larger scale. So as mentioned, I'd written the book with Wiley, uh, which is my publisher back in 2017. I reached out to my executive editor and I said, hey, I think we have an idea. And he said, we love it. Can you write it in three months? <laughs> and we said, I think. <laughs> so let me see how we can do it. So the good news is, Gosh, I worked in broadcast journalism for the bulk of my career. I can deal with a deadline. I can deal with a very tight deadline. What was amazing to me is Joe Allen comes from academia, which is not known for its speed. <laughs> but wow. he is actually more responsive than I am. Uh, and he is a very fast writer as well. So we kind of put our heads down, divided and conquered, and, and came up with the book that, um, you know, I think was really needed at that time. And we got it to market as quickly as possible. And it was very well received. We, we got a lot of, um, you know, awards and nice mentions and, and uh, you know, having McKinsey headline, uh, you know, our, have our book headline their newsletter was a pretty big deal. So, you know, we were really excited to see people, uh, you know, embrace it as much as they did. It's interesting because I've always seen the virtual side in an interview, so it's a little bit expected of how you come online to a, a camera, how your room might be set up, but I think a meeting is a little bit different. Sure. And I am curious because we would have listeners from our alumni who are colleagues, maybe leading meetings or attending meetings, which we can kind of go into that too, and students and classes, but for those leading, or teaching a class, um, do you have any particular tips about how to run a successful virtual meeting? Well, I think the first thing you have to consider is what sort of mental mindset shift do you need to make? Because a lot of times whenever people are talking to a camera, they feel like they are performing and, and they kind of get into this presenter mode and you know they, they start you know projecting their voice or doing big gestures and, and they think that that's the way they need to act on camera. But that's not the case at all. What works best on camera is not performance, but being authentic. And the camera is in essence, the conduit to your conversation partner. So when you want to uh, really resonate uh, with the people on the other side, you need to pour your energy through that camera uh, and just recognize that, that that's the way you reach them. Uh, it's not something that you're not performing to a piece of glass. You are just reaching through that camera lens to, to connect with the people on the other side. So if you have that in mind, it, it helps because instead of you know, kind of having this um, affect that doesn't quite feel like it's you being you, you can kind of take some of that away. Uh, you know, people are always like, you're so, you're so polished on camera. I'm like, I'm not, I'm actually just myself. <laughs> but, but that's what resonates with you because you, you don't have that kind of barrier to your authenticity that often happens whenever people are stuck on a camera. So that's a really key part, just understanding how to interact with that camera. Uh, there's all sorts of other stuff related to virtual meeting, you know, etiquette and strategies. The one I will mention is uh, just understanding that you're always battling the default position of passive observer. It's how people have been conditioned to engage with screens, which is you don't engage. You watch TV, you watch a movie. But in a virtual meeting, you want people to be active participants through a screen. So it requires you to constantly try to get them to do things. 
<laughs> so that can be as simple as having polls. It can be as simple as making people, you know, speak up, uh, you know, having those participatory moments where, you know, you bring them into the conversation early, you have them speak so that they will hopefully have that trickle through the entire engagement. That is really, really critical because you don't want it to be a situation where people are just watching you because they'll check out. It's too easy to check out. So you, you almost force them to stay engaged because they have to do things. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And it's easy to assume, of course, the person leading the meeting or teaching the class is going to have their video on. What about the participants? Is there a value that you see for them to have their camera on or even as a leader how to encourage people to have their video on to engage in that conversation more authentically? Yeah, two two sides to that, right? So, mm -hmm. you know, having your camera on is a really critical piece for both parties. Uh, for the speaker, uh, it's important to have your camera on because people can more easily read the intent of your message. It's also very important for the audience to have their cameras on so that you can read the impact of your message on them. Uh, it's also a valuable way to hold yourself accountable. Uh, so if you have your camera off, you might think, oh yeah, I'm I'm listening, I'm paying attention. Guess what, you're not. You're gonna be multitasking. It is it's too easy to do that. We all do it. But if you have your camera on, it, it kind of forces you to, to be present much more so than if your camera is off. So that's, that's one of the big benefits. Um, if you are in a meeting as well and you wanna have um, influence over the meeting, you need to be represented as fully as possible. Uh, so if you don't have your camera on, you're taking away a really powerful tool in your toolbox and your presence will be diminished. And that's kind of presence with a capital P. <laughs> you know, do you want to have impact? Do you want to have influence on what's going on? Do you want to be noticed or do you want to disappear? If you want to disappear, by all means, keep your camera off, but that's not going to be a benefit to you. I've also noticed this is just a question kind of steering off of the video. Yeah. Sometimes the background of the videos, I've I've been curious because what I've learned from the interview side of how to set up a pretty blank background, maybe less distracting. Um, I've seen it differ for meetings and I've noticed some people will put maybe a particular image in their background that's provided by the software um, that you can kind of select in advance, right. a blurred background or uh, one that I noticed most recently was on a webinar, people are branding their backgrounds to where right. they work. Mm -hmm. what, what's your opinion on the best way to arrive to a meeting or lead a meeting with the way that your backdrop looks? So initial research has indicated that people prefer a real background versus a virtual one. Uh, but there's a caveat to that because what we did find, you know, throughout the pandemic is there were a lot of concerns related to privacy, uh, related to uh, DEI issues, uh, where some people just felt like having um, the, a real background was, was a bit too far for them to go. So those virtual backgrounds really were a way of kind of anonymizing things, right? And and so I think there's, there's research in, regarding preferences, but they're also, also is a reality that we have to acknowledge. Uh, but what I would suggest is if you're using a virtual background, you don't wanna have anything moving on that. And I know when you're talking about those stock images, sometimes there's one of a beach where you've got like the waves rolling in, that is gonna be really distracting. Do not use that, please. Um, you know, but using the branded backgrounds, that, that can be okay. And it might be something that you're forced to do by your company anyway. But what I would suggest is making sure that it layers as 
cleanly as possible because you probably have seen the situation where there's those watery edges where, you know, and I know, you know, they can't see at home, but, but you're wearing a headset right now. What happens often with a headset is you'll have like one piece of the headset being eaten by the virtual background uh, in the early days when the artificial intelligence that was used to create them wasn't that great my hair would be eaten <laughs> all the time. So, so I was always really reluctant to use them. The AI has improved, but there's still challenges with it. So if you want to better ensure that it will layer without having those watery edges, uh, you can use a green screen that, and, and you don't have to have a big elaborate setup. There are ones that you can actually put right over the back of your chair. Uh, that allow it to layer nicely. You don't have to worry about having those, um, you know, appendages being, you know, taken <laughs> off the screen by it. Um, but you can also just check to see what your background is like. So if you have a blank wall that you're sitting against without um, any sort of interruption to the field of view, that's going to layer better than if you have a whole bunch of stuff behind you that you're trying to layer that background on because you might have bleed through. Uh, the blurred background typically will work better in that situation. Situation. Yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about with the little blur around people. Sometimes things will come into focus where I'm like, well, what, what was that? Right. Um, <laughs> or if they get up and it's like they disappeared into yeah. like some bizarre ether. It's really strange, right? Or people pick right. up a coffee cup and it'll come out of nowhere. <laughs> yes, yes. It is kind of comical, the virtual world that we're in. Um, yeah. Just the little nuances. We talked about this before we started on the recording, but as far as like how often you hear, I'm sorry, you're muted nice. in a meeting. And so those little things we can have uh, a little humor with, but being prepared, you know, is essentially more comfortable and, and allows for, like you said earlier, a more authentic conversation or meeting, mm. um, which I always appreciate. And one more thing on virtual meetings before um, we continue into some other things, video fatigue. Mm. I feel like it's something many of us experienced these last few years, mm -hmm. unexpectedly, perhaps. Um, it's exhausting staring at a screen and staying in the same spot for a meeting. You talked about this, I think, a little bit in this book, and I'm just curious, what's your advice on how to combat that video fatigue that we all are dealing with? There's so many different layers to this, but the one thing I would bring to your attention right away is there has been a meeting explosion as a result <laughs> of the pandemic. We have more meetings than ever before and they're longer than ever before. And so that, that video call fatigue could actually be better termed just meeting fatigue. Because you know, if you were forced to sit in one chair for eight hours, even without video on, that's gonna be exhausting, right? And so that, to me is more of the issue than the video itself. But, you know, also acknowledging that, yeah, if you're seeing your image on the screen, you're staring at yourself on the screen, uh, that's distracting, that's disconcerting. <laughs> so there is that aspect of it. But what I would suggest is if you have a platform that allows you to hide self-view, that can make a big difference in how you feel whenever you're in that meeting. Uh, there's a, a platform that lots of people use. We're using it right now. They don't have that feature yet, <laughs> but it is in the offing. It's supposed to be coming out. Um, in the meantime, what you can take is a sticky note 
put it at the bottom of your screen, cover yourself up because you don't need to see yourself talk. We don't walk around holding up a mirror to our faces. Uh, so we're put in this bizarre communication environment that really is, is very draining. Uh, so, you know, taking you out of it can help. If you also follow best practices for eye contact when you're in a meeting, it's also less fatiguing because for example, when you speak, you wanna be looking primarily at the camera lens. So you're not watching yourself anyway. You shouldn't be watching yourself anyway. Now, whenever somebody else is speaking, you want the opportunity to read their body language. So that's when you do want to look at the screen. And then I can see, like, for example, you're nodding along right now, Amy, and that's great. Um, so you, it, it's kind of this dance between looking at the camera and then looking at the screen, looking at the camera and looking at the screen. So if, if you look at it that way, rather than I'm just going to be staring at one spot on my monitor and that spot is going to be my face, um, you know, that would be the most draining thing to do. Uh, but taking yourself off, engaging with the camera lens so that you're making good pretend eye contact with the person on the other side can also help. But the ultimate thing to do is have less meetings. <laughs> And, and basically free up your calendar more, switch more to asynchronous uh, options for communicating information. Asynchronous means that uh, it can be consumed by the person on their own time. You know, record yourself doing a presentation rather than doing it in real time unless you want to get their feedback. You know, do a, a recorded video clip that you can send off through, you know, a Teams channel, a Slack channel, you know. Sometimes you do need to send an email. Sometimes you do need to send, you know, a, a PDF or a, or a document, you know, have that be done offline. So whenever you're going into these video meetings, they're the ones that really matter, the ones that require collaboration, the ones that require decision making. Well, in respect of video fatigue, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. All roads lead home for Homecoming 2022. Mark your calendar now for September 30th through October 2nd and plan to hit the road to come back home for the most anticipated alumni event of the year. We'll be celebrating class reunions for the alumni who have graduated in the years ending in twos or sevens. We'll also be celebrating some Greek reunions, the 105th reunion for the Zeta Zeta Zetas, the 100th reunion for Beta Sigma, the 75th reunion for Alpha Beta Tau, and the 75th reunion for Omicron Xi. Make your hotel reservation today and check out all the details at alumni.gcc.edu homecoming. We look forward to having you on campus at home this fall. All right, we are back continuing the conversation with Karen Hawkins-Reed, class of 1992, CEO of Speaker Dynamics and award-winning author. Our conversation thus far has been on the art of the virtual meetings and the demand for Karen's expertise over these past few years. Um, as things are continuing to shift in our world, her third book is hitting at a pivotal moment and it's called Suddenly Hybrid. So Karen, to kind of shift our conversation towards the hybrid work environment, I'm noticing a lot of places, including Grove City College, they're migrating into this office environment um, where a lot of meetings happen to be hybrid. So people are either working in the office, joining a meeting, but then also having some sort of device to put people virtually into the meeting. So I'm pretty curious about this topic. We're still learning about it. How do you see hybrid meetings organized well? And then do you think this is our new normal? I definitely think it's the new normal just because 
flexible work is what people are asking for. So at first, you know, we were, you know, fully virtual because of safety. Now we are at least partially virtual because of flexibility and 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 people's desires to, you know, have that kind of freedom to say, I want to work from anywhere at any time, you know, and getting that genie back in the bottle is not going to happen. Like it is here. <laughs> And and there will be some organizations that will decide, no, this is not for us. We're going to be, you know, back in the office. And there will be self-selection where people will gravitate to those organizations if that's what they prefer. There will also be those that are fully remote now uh, because they realized there was no productivity dip. And so they will stay in that fully remote situation. And then there's gonna be a group that will want to be fully remote all the time and they'll go there. But the majority of people, and especially knowledge workers, will be in a hybrid situation. So hybrid meetings are something that we have to figure out because you can figure out the math problem of, okay, on Tuesdays and Thursdays, our team is gonna be together, but you can bet on a Wednesday, there's going to be something that needs to be discussed and not everybody is going to be in the office. And you have to have some sort of way to connect regardless of location. So that's why it's really critical that we figure out these hybrid meetings because they're not easy unless you are intentional. And so that's what we talk about in the book, how you need to have strategies in place to be able to manage this new way of gathering that is going to be with us for the foreseeable future. Yeah, and I love hybrid meetings for that, where we are connecting with people who might not come to campus or be able to come to campus, or as our team's traveling, we can still have a meeting with them, even though they're on the road. So I think there's a lot of benefits to the hybrid work environment. It's just learning, like you said, how to be intentional about it and strategize. Um, I noticed in your book, while I was reading it, there was a tip that you offered that I thought was interesting um, for those who are in virtually and you're ending the meeting, not to sign off with those individuals until everyone leaves in person. Right. Um, could you elaborate a little bit on the value of this approach? Because I thought that was an interesting take that I have not considered. Well, absolutely, because you all know that there's a meeting after a meeting. <laughs> and if you close the meeting link, the people who are attending remotely will think that they're missing out. And, and that's when you are creating this kind of two-tiered system where those who are uh, in person have access to more information than those who are joining remotely. And that is really the key thing to consider with hybrid. It's always pushing back against that in-room bias, that in-person bias, which is only natural. Uh, so you have to not only you know, reorient uh, the technology to accommodate hybrid meetings, but you have to reorient your approach and always be putting yourself in the shoes of the virtual attendees to ensure that they have uh, equal participation, opportunities, uh, that you develop equal collaboration opportunities, uh, and, and that there isn't this kind of two-tiered system because that can develop as a result. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And the setup of the room would be something to consider too. You also talk about in your book, the technology of those who are connecting virtually to see what's going on in the room kind of spread out. There's different kind of setups that I think you had put in there as options. Yeah. Um, well, so that it, was fascinating. Well, there's a lot of innovation that has mm -hmm. been happening. I mean, people have been trying to solve for the hybrid uh, situation practically from the beginning of the pandemic. Uh, so there's a lot of amazing technology that is on the market now. 
But honestly, it's a matter of understanding the basics too, because I, I spend a lot of time training people who are considering it a victory if they can share their screen. So if you can, <laughs> if you invest in like this really high tech stuff, there is a danger that it will not be used. So what I suggest is make sure that you have the basics covered, which means in your meeting room, you need to have a way for people to easily be seen and heard regardless of where they are, are in the actual physical room. So for example, you need to have a high quality conference room camera. Uh, you know, you need to have an audio system so that everybody's voices can be picked up regardless of where they're seated. That is one of the early pushbacks that I'm hearing about where people who are joining virtually can't hear those little side conversations that are being had in the conference room and it's frustrating and it's feeling marginalizing. So you have to make sure that you have adequate audio. <laughs> I remember a hybrid classroom that I taught several years ago that consisted of opening a laptop and putting it at the end of the conference room table. Yes. And, and that was our hybrid meeting. That is not adequate. You need to have monitors that are large enough so the people who are joining virtually can be represented visually appropriately because otherwise they will disappear from view and people will forget about them. So that's like on that side of things. But you also, as a remote attendee, you need to take responsibility for, first of all, your internet connection, you know, audio drops and frozen video will not allow you to be able to participate in full. So that is something that needs to be shored up. A lot of companies are starting to pay for the higher speed internet uh, because it's table stakes that has to happen. Mm -hmm. um, if you don't have a high quality webcam now, you should <laughs> because you want people to be able to see you as clearly as possible and you need to have good audio. And actually people are more tolerant of poor video quality than they are of poor audio quality. So if there's an investment to be made that I would invest in audio. Hmm, that's good, that's helpful. And I'm noticing, of course, we can see each other in this conversation. As far as audio, you're coming through very clear. Like what, do you have any particular um, resources or thoughts on like what works best? It depends on your room, very honestly, okay. because your acoustics uh, will be um, impacting your audio quality. So there are some circumstances where, you know, your built-in microphone on your laptop is okay. Uh, okay. But if you have high ceilings, if you have hardwood floors, tile floors, windows without window treatments, uh, that can create a very bouncy sound uh, and you can sound really echoey if you're using your laptop microphones. Uh, whereas if you have an external microphone that is a little bit more focused in its range, you're gonna be better off. So I used to have uh, offices downtown in Raleigh that were really cool, lots of concrete and windows and glass everywhere. It was the worst for audio quality. I couldn't find a microphone that worked in there. So I had to use a headset uh, because otherwise it just sounded like I was talking from a tin can. So my best advice is explore all audio options. Uh, don't just assume your laptop microphones work because they may not. And the thing is we can't hear ourselves, right? So the best way to find out how you sound is hop on a call, with a, a candid friend or colleague who will tell you how you sound and you can toggle between the different audio inputs uh, and see which one works best. I do want to go back to something we did talk about a moment ago, a little bit about the hybrid work, yeah. the setup and things of that nature. Part of me has felt sometimes that setup can be 
a lot. Mm. It's an extra effort to make yeah. sure now that you are including people in person and virtually. And I just was curious because hybrid seems like it's going to be something to stay with. Um, what are the benefits to doing the hybrid in person and virtual versus the places that might just be like, yeah, we're all in the office today, but just get on your computer right, and join the meeting. Zoom. Yes. <laughs> Even though you're physically in the office, I feel like that's something that could happen. Oh, How it do does. We, it yeah. does. Okay. How do we keep people on the other side of this where that extra effort is worth it? Well, yeah, recognize that this was very common advice uh, given by meeting consultants for years, you know, avoid hybrid at all costs. You know, that hybrid class that I talked about with the laptop on the conference room uh, table, that was not a good experience. It wasn't a good experience for me and it wasn't a good experience for the poor people who were, who were attending virtually. But that was, you know, before we became enlightened <laughs> about what it requires <laughs> to make it work. But what I would say to you is by sending everybody back to their Zoom boxes, you are forgetting an essential part. And that's that we are social beings. We like to be in the presence of others. And there's great value in creating that energy in the room, even if it's not including everybody at that given time. There's still benefit and value provided that those who are remote are pulled in and made a part of that experience. So what that means is, you know, let people gather you know, together in the room, but then make sure that it's not exclusive just to them. You know, what I think about when there is a camera in the room is that it is representing people. And I'm going to include the the people, you know, who are represented by that camera as much as I'm going to include the people who I'm, you know, able to reach out and touch. But it requires you to really think about that and be purposeful. So one thing that you can try, for example, a strategy is if you are a meeting leader and you're going through your agenda, if you hit a topic of discussion, rather than turning to, you know, Joe, who's on your right and say, what do you think? Kick it off. Instead, turn your attention to the screen and have the remote people speak first, because that immediately sets the stage that, hey, we've got a lot of people in this meeting and it's not just the people who are, are in the same space with us. Let's hear from them. So it gives them a, a chance to weigh in, but also raises the collective awareness of everybody of who is in the meeting itself. Yes, that's helpful. And I, I'm curious with that thought too. One thing I notice with more primarily virtual meetings, but it would happen in hybrid is when you're on the virtual side and you want to speak up how to do so. There's often the interruptions or the delays. Do you have any thoughts on like the best practice for people if they are maybe even in the hybrid work, how they can speak up when there's a lot of conversation going on? Oh yeah, it's harder in hybrid yeah. by far because if you don't have a policy in place, then those who are in person in the meeting room will dominate the conversation because the poor people who are virtual can't get a word in edgewise. <laughs> uh, so you you need to develop a turn-taking policy and then ensure that it's adhered to. Uh, so let people know how they can get in the conversation queue. So that could be, you know, raise your, your emoji hand, raise your physical hand, you know, be called on, you know, by name so that you know when you have the floor. Uh, and then as a meeting leader, you really need to be proactive in facilitating. So if you're somebody who whose style is to come in and just let it be a free for all exchange of ideas, 
that's not going to work in hybrid because you're going to have certain people who will be able to dominate the conversation and you're going to miss out on having all of the ideas and the brainstorming by everyone. Uh, and so ultimately, uh, the result, the outcome, the decision is not going to be optimal. So you have to be really purposeful as a meeting leader to try to pull out that even participation. And, and sometimes what it takes is having literally strict policies in place. You know, we talk about in Suddenly Hybrid having a team meeting agreement, you know, and figuring out, okay, culturally, what do we want to have uh, prioritized in how we meet uh, in a hybrid setting? Uh, and this isn't just a nice to have, this is a need to have. There was an amazing survey that came out by Barco uh, that talked about uh, how people who are currently in a hybrid workforce, like 30% said that they would consider an offer from another hybrid company if that hybrid company had a well-defined hybrid meeting policy. Because there are inequities that, that they were experiencing and getting frustrated by. So it's something that really should be done, um, you know, prior to even attempting it. Uh, you know, so the first hybrid meeting you'd have Make it be one where you're discussing how you're going to handle hybrid meetings. Uh, you know, codify it, co-create, collaborate, get buy-in on it, and then have everybody sign off. And that way you've at least gotten some initial commitment. And this is not something that is, you know, a strict document. It's going to be a living document that will change because, you know, part of this is like the book is being written <laughs> as, mm -hmm. we're, as we're going through this. Uh, but that at least is going to put you at a higher level of understanding of what needs to be considered uh, in a hybrid meeting. Absolutely. It's learning as we go, figuring yeah. it out based on scenarios. Every experience right. teaches us something different. But I feel like we've only scratched the surface with your books. And it's really inspiring to know that there's a lot of help out there for this new work environment that we're all kind of figuring out as we go along. And I just want to encourage people that are listening that Karen's books are available at Barnes and Nobles and on Amazon. You can go anywhere, honestly. Anywhere, anywhere you buy books, you will find <laughs> them. Uh, and you know, we'd certainly love your support. They, they've done well uh, so far. That's We've been great. very fortunate. Um, and it's, it's been great to be in this position to help people navigate what is really an essential skill. <laughs> Absolutely. From the person leading to the person attending, I think people can take a lot away from those. Um, and it's just been a joy talking to you. I so appreciate your time joining us on the podcast today and just teaching us a little bit more about your career and also your expertise. So thank you again for sharing this with us. Amy, it's been a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much. Home is where everything Thank you for listening to the Mid the Pines podcast. Explore more episodes at alumni.gcc.edu slash podcast. Our co-producers are Joni Baumgartner and Amy Evans. Research provided by Janice Zinsner Inman, class of 1987. Audio editing is provided by Jennifer Hiles. Our theme music is Home, courtesy of the family of the late David M. Bailey, class of 1988. Contact us at alumni.gcc.edu for more information. We hope you'll join us again, Mid the Pines.